This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm David Kern and I quickly wanted to say a word of thanks to some of our friends who are making this show possible. Our friends over at the CLT, the Classic Learning Test, are doing an amazing work. They're a classically based alternative to the SAT and the ACT and it's the fastest growing college entrance exam in America today. More than 90 colleges now accept the CLT and many of them even endorse the CLT as their preferred admissions test. That's even more than the SAT and the ACT. Students who take the test can benefit from same-day test results and can share their scores with colleges for no additional charge. To learn more or to find out how to take a test, you can head over to cltexam.com. Again, to register for the CLT, you head over to cltexam.com. So again, thanks so much to our friends over at the Classic Learning Test for sponsoring the Cersei Institute Podcast Network this month. It's because of them and partners like them that this network is possible. And with that, enjoy your show. Thanks for listening. Hello, welcome to Forma. I'm Andrew Kern, and I have with me today Matt Bianco. And we're going to talk about reading because reading's a big deal. Some of you may have heard of this. It's an antiquated custom that comes from the days before you could hear everything um, online, and people would learn codes and um, sound symbols and stuff like that for words, and then they would scan a piece of paper, papyrus, maybe clay with their eyes. And they would, they would actually understand what they were looking at in sort of a miraculous way. So what Matt and I are going to do today is we're going to explain this historical artifact, this, this ancient custom to you. Or actually, we're going, to, um, we're going to talk about reading because we love doing it. And we're going to, maybe we'll even mention things about the history of reading. But before I go any further, let me say, hi, Matt. Hi, Andrew. It's good to have you with us. Glad to be here. So who's hosting, you or me? I, I, I think it sounds like you are so far. Well, you take over. You want me to take over? Yeah, you host me now. Andrew, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Welcome to Forma. It's good to be here. It is good to be here. I agree. I always love talking with you, especially when we're talking about books. Any book in particular? Any book. Any book. But in particular, I would have to say Plato and Homer, because that's what we talk about the most between us. It does strike me, though, that when I talk to you about books, I understand them way better than if I just 
move my eyes across the pages. It's a dialogue. That is a curious thing, isn't it? And I always want to talk to you about them so that I can understand them better. So it's the feelings mutual, but I don't think it's particular to us. I think it's human nature, right? If we, we read a book, we want to talk about it with other people and solidify our understanding of it or grow our understanding of it or, or pass on our love for it to somebody else. That must be why Close Reads is so popular, the Close Reads podcast. It must be. Because we part of it, to for talk. sure. Yeah. yeah. And you get permission to read and talk about. One of the things that, that David said we should talk about in this that people have been asking about is, is basically, let's say, how to teach kids how to read. And I, I am persuaded that one of the mistakes that's, that's made about reading is that we, we tend to think of reading as a mechanical act of moving the, the eye across the paper. And then when we think it through a little step further, we think about a mental process of drawing stuff off the page, right? Mm -hmm. But now you have to learn to decode, no doubt. And what I mean by decode is you have to learn that, you know, the sound that each letter makes. You got to learn the phonics, that kind of thing. You have to learn to decode. But one of the things that, that I've been learning is that when kids get to about fourth grade, if they haven't learned how to decode, it's going to be really hard to teach them how to do it. But you can motivate them to do it when you use something like a Socratic dialogue, which really just means when you discuss the book with kids. It's, it's sort of a backward thing. The older they get, the less they want to do what little kids should have learned how to do. And the more they want to think about the ideas in the book. Right. And the reason I mention that is because to me, that's crucial to reading. If you're reading for any other reason than to get ideas off the page, to get to think about ideas, I'm not sure what that would be. <laughs> not sure what other reason you could have for reading that, that um, doesn't diminish the act. Now, I don't mean there's not other benefits. But right. all of those benefits depend on thinking about the ideas on the page. There's a, um, there's a parallel to that with writing. You know, younger kids, when they're learning how to write, it's, it's a process of encoding. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. they don't mind. They're, like, they want to learn how to encode. So they are willing to encode other people's ideas. Tell me what this book is about or whatever. Um, but as they get older, they want to they want to process those ideas through themselves or, or have their own ideas expressed. Right. Right. And so they, they want, um, which I, as a side note, I guess I think is why the law schools of writing is so incredible because the students get to use invention to bring up, to come up with their own ideas and, and then put those out there, even though, it, even though so they're, they're simultaneously being driven back to the text to be able to do that, but they're not just giving me, a summary or book report of the the story they read. And they like that kind of writing better because they like to think about their own ideas um, or process the ideas they're reading through their, their own experiences and understanding. And I think the same thing's true with reading. You know, at one point they're just, they just want to learn how to decode, but at a certain age, when they reach a certain age, they want to, um, they think. want to process those ideas through yeah. their experiences and through their relationships with, parents, teachers, friends, grandparents, pastors, whatever. Yeah, maybe that's the right use of the word relevance. I think generally speaking, we corrupt reading by trying to make it relevant. We think that that means 
using kids their age in their situation, whereas in fact, reading is an act. It's fundamentally, boy, reading is fundamentally an analogical act, right? Mm-hmm. You are, you are, a book is an analogy, an extended analogy made up of analogies being read by an analogy. Now, what I mean by that is that a human being is an image of God. An image is an analogy. We're, we're not God. We're like God, fragmented, but we're like God, and that's one reason we use language. Given that, one thing we do, being like God the Creator, is we create analogies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we write books. Yeah. So here we have an analogy reading an analogy, and that's that's the true relevance, right? Is that is that as a child is encountering the the written text he's he's acting out his humanness his divine image and that's relevant to him but also he's so intuitively aware of likenesses between things one of the most amazing things i I remember happening in the last few months is is jeremiah who is five maybe he was he was um he was talking to karen and jeremiah is my grandson karen is my wife Jeremiah, therefore, using logic, is Karen's grandson. He was therefore talking to his grandmother, who well was done. taking care of him. Well done. And he said to her, well, she said something like, would you like to sit and read a book with me? And he said something along the lines of, nope, I'm walking from Mongolia to, to uh, I think to China, I think was what he said. I'm walking from Mongolia to China. And he proceeded to just, you know, walk in front of her and on he went in that, in that five-year-old way of marching, you know, swinging the arms up and against the chest and all that. It was really funny. But what really, what blew my mind about this is how easy it is and how natural it is for children to function in that analogical realm. So here we are, he's looking at maps, but somehow he understands that maps represent places that he's never seen and never been. And that they represent places that he could go and from which he could go from one location to another. When we lose the idea that that the human child has an analogical mind, you might just say a very incredibly miraculously imaginative mind, then we teach reading incorrectly. We we teach them how to read in a hyper-analytical mode, and we teach them how to... um, We we overemphasize process and we underemphasize thought. So mm-hmm. this is why this is why I talk quite a lot about my, um the three stages of lear- of reading. Yeah. And I think, you know, we've got this reading guide and and people have had questions about that, but I think in order to to understand that the place of that reading guide it might help to understand the three stages of reading, which are there's decoding or what I call dependent reading. Sorry. There's dependent reading. That's stage 1. And then there's decoding, which is actually not reading. It's a different mental act. If you look at the mind instead of the body, you can see that easily. What is the mind doing during dependent reading, which I'll come back to? During decoding, the mind is not reading. It's not looking for ideas on the page. It's looking for sound symbols. Very different act. Yeah. But then gradually, the child moves from decoding to independent reading. And the difference between dependent reading and independent reading is that in one you're dependent and in the other you're independent, which means, of course, (laughs) which means that 
In dependent reading, a child is sitting on his mom's lap and she's reading, but he's reading too, but with the ear. His mind is doing basically the same thing, but he's doing it with the ear. Then there's this major barrier between him and being able to do that by himself. It's called the alphabet. Mm-hmm. He has to take a few years to learn to decode the alphabet. Err, phonics. <laughs> and then, well, consider the alternative. And right. then he can learn indepe- to read independently. And there tends to be a moment or a, you know, a short span where all of a sudden it falls together for him. And now this decoder becomes a reader. But I think what we have to focus on is what the mind is doing, not so much what the eyes are doing in order to understand reading correctly. It's strange, though, because we, we confuse decoding with reading. I know. We even say, we'll give them an I can read book. Yeah. Right? It says on the cover, I can read. But the whole point is they can't hardly. Yeah, I can they decode. They can hardly. Right. Yeah, it should say I can decode. But we're trying to motivate them, so we're willing to lie to them, you know, that sort of thing. But then we stop there. And that part of the difficult or part of the frustration probably with reading today, why why you you maybe not completely jokingly referred to reading as this ancient practice or the practice of antiquity, but maybe why reading falls out of favor so easily for some is because we don't teach them how to read after we teach them how to decode. Huh. We Go just on. we just give them the book and then we, we think that by having taught them to decode we've given them all the tools they need. Um, not, we don't necessarily think that consciously, but that's just what happens. Right. And now I can read. Now Now you can read. My child could read in second grade and go read. And then why aren't you reading? Why don't you like reading these books? (laughs) And then we have to jump through hoops to try to find ways to entice them to read, bribe them, give them books about bathroom humor and, you know, (laughs) whatever. Um, because we think that they're looking for something to, to misuse the word you said earlier, relevant and, and um, to to get them to make them want to read, the difficulty, the problem is that the reason that they're not interested in reading is because they still don't know how. Yeah, they don't know how, and therefore to overcome that, we give them stuff they're really not interested in. Yeah, I always mock the C. Dick run. You know the right. C, he, here's here's Dick. Here's Jane, or C. Dick. Here's C. Jane. C. Dick run. C. Jane. C. The ball. That's not interesting okay. <laughs> to anybody. <laughs> That's not interesting. And so the child, you know, and, and also they're not using it to teach phonics, but they're using it to teach whole language. Right. So now the, the, the problem is that sentimental value is attached to it. So they make movies out of it and publish old books. It gets but, worse, though, like when, the, when especially for boys, when they get to like 10, 11, 12, the books that they write now are, they're all books about bathroom humor, potty mm-hmm. humor. You know, they're just trying to to tap into what they think boys like. Mm-hmm. Which, sure, boys do like that. You know, in, in their in their private humor with each other. Yeah, right. Not right. from not affirmed by adults. Right. right. They're supposed to outgrow <laughs> that, not get stuck in it. <laughs> and so then they 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 publish books like that because they think that's what the boys need to read. But how many times have you sat in front of a junior high or high school kid teaching them, or heard stories about this where you're 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 explaining, you know, some symbolism of the story that uh, you know what. Uh, 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 the Scarlet Letter, right? You're reading the Scarlet Letter with a group of high school kids, and you're explaining some symbolism that Hawthorne's using, and the kids are like, "No, 
you you you're saying that's what the symbol means, right? But he didn't say that. He doesn't mean he doesn't mean red in that way or black in that way mm-hmm. or you know that this tree doesn't mean because it's that this kind of a tree it means this thing. I'm so glad you used the scarlet letter because one of the things that people don't understand about the scarlet letter is that it's a fairy tale, hmm. right? It's a fairy tale in the form of a novel, and the characters are played out like it's a fairy tale. Okay, so if you want kids to read the Scarlet Letter in high school, let them read fairy tales when they're little. Hmm. Then they'll have, then they'll have built up something like the furniture, the the apparatus to be able to read that in high school. Uh, so there's already children's literature, right? There has been from the dawn of time. There's yeah. been children's literature from antiquity, <laughs> from the old days even. Yeah. <laughs> There's, there's, you know, there's mythology. There's the Bible is written magnificently for children. This, the, the history sections. You know, who doesn't love the Joseph story? Yeah. Who doesn't love the David and Goliath story? There's all kinds of stuff in there for children, and and so what we do is, we we hold off culturally. I mean, not every parent who listens to this, but but culturally we hold off serious reading, and when we think of children's reading, we think of childish instead of childlike Hmm. what children ought Hmm. to be and can be reading is simple fables and fairy tales and folk tales now no they can't do that beyond their decoding capacity but this is okay so this is a crucial point to to, in my view to to teaching children how to read the most important thing to teach a child well there's two most important things to teach a child how to read the one is read to the poor kid Hmm. and not just that is grade level whatever that means. At his, his intellectual level is far beyond his decoding level, right? He can understand the King James Bible perfectly fine for the most part. Some antiquated words, but look them up. And everybody knows, by the way, what thee and thou mean. Everybody knows that, okay? So he can, he can read, he can read uh, through the ear way beyond what he can decode. So read to the poor child and never stop. People often say, how, how long do you, do you recommend you read to your kids? And I tell them, my father read to me. My father died when I was 42, I think, 43. And the last time he read to me was about six months or a year before that. Hmm. So that's how long you should read to your children. There's a, 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 a parallel to what you're saying too, right? That, that we, we can recognize from our own experiences. I can go to a lecture at you know, some university nearby is putting on some lecture and I can go there and I can listen to some professor talk about, um, you know, whatever, something, some, some literary thing, you know, from some book that I may or may not be familiar with. And he's talking about it on a higher level, right? Higher, Mm -hmm. more scholastic Mm -hmm. or more scholarly level. Yeah, that's good. And I can listen to him describe that and understand what he's saying, you know, get most of it for the most part. But I I couldn't necessarily express that back to somebody else. Right. Like I couldn't right. come back and then explain it to you. You know, hey, this is what this guy was talking about it. So I can understand it as I'm listening, but I can't necessarily That's understand right. it with my words. And that I, I think there's a parallel there to what kids can do. Kids can hear a heck of a lot and understand a whole lot of it. Right. Even though if that same thing was put in front of them to de- to be decoded, they wouldn't be able to understand it. Or to discuss with somebody else, that would be harder for them. Right. Absolutely. So, But they can receive it. It's Think about learning a foreign language. It's so much easier to receive it than to produce it. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> the, the gap between the gap... I can read 
fairly complex German because I went to school as a kid and my mother was German. I can read fairly complex German if I have a dictionary with me and if I watch some movies or something to get caught up a bit. Yeah. If I, if I went to Germany for a week, I'd probably get pretty good at it. But to produce German, I'm at about, you know, what we would now call a second or third grade level, probably. <laughs> right. right? right. And, and the trouble is the child's desire for the transcendent never goes away. And what we have to figure out, so, so, so I was saying read to them, and, and that's the reason for reading to them is, is precisely that, that, that he wants the transcendent, so give it to him. Fairy tales, Bible stories, mythology, I'm not equating Bible stories, but you know the, the fairy tales and the mythology and the folk tales, these touch the child's imagination at a transcendent level. They're moving him upward. Mm. But then there's simply the, the skill Right? There's simply the skill of learning how to read. And there's two things here that I think are crucial. We've ke- we keep talking about decoding. you got to teach them how to decode. But the other thing, and this is, this is I'm going to argue that next to reading to the child, this is the most important thing you have to teach a child. Ask questions. Hmm. The child has to learn how to ask questions. Yeah. And there are certain kinds of questions that we ask because we're human beings when we pick up a text. And if we teach the child what those questions are, we help them read better. Now, this, this applies to, to second graders and 12th graders and college students and 40-year-olds, any age, right? There's certain, if, if you pick up a book, when you're a little child, you might not ask the practical questions that I'm obsessed by. But when I pick up a book, my first question is usually... How long is this going to take me? Mm-hmm. I think I think that's a really good question. But but in school it's it's like, you know, that 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 would have been I don't know if anybody ever said that to me, but that would have been frowned upon as as not a wow, why are you asking that question? You know, <laughs> how long is it? Because I'm mortal. I have 24 hours a day. Reading for my teacher isn't the only thing or to me even anywhere close to the most important thing in my day. See, I'm a Christian, so I would have said, because Jesus said to count the cost. Oh, good. That's yes, what, yeah. that's better. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I, w- I was being, uh, not, I was being very being selfish. Quite as pious as I am, exactly right. <laughs> so, yeah, the pious, the pious reason for asking how long this is going to take is to count the cost. Right? How long is it going to take me? Because we're mortal, we 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 have time commitments, we have other duties. Right. So, therefore, I think the first thing a person should be taught, given permission to ask is given how much time I have, how much of this can I read right now? Yeah. And that, and how do you do that? Well, you flip through it. Now, of course, younger kids don't have much experience, so they don't really know how long. But I, I know about, you know, the typical page is going to take me somewhere around two or three minutes if I, if I don't hurry through it and if I actually think about it a little bit and if it's regular font. So, you know, I, I can look, I'm, I have in front of me a book, I'm looking at a chapter called Teaching Culture, and I want to read that chapter, and it's from page 57 to page 68, 11. It's going to take me between 20 and 30 minutes unless I want to study it, right? Mm-hmm. Or I could go really fast. But now here's the other thing. Okay, if the first question is, how long is this going to take me? There's a second question that I think is absolutely crucial and nobody ever asks consciously. Everybody always asks it unconsciously. <laughs> I'll illustrate. Do you know what the question would be? What do you think? Um, the, so the first question was, how long is this going to take? Yeah. And the second question, no, I don't know. Why am I reading this? Oh, right. Okay. So And, and see, this opens up all manner of permissions. 
Because we read like slaves, let's face it. We don't read like free people, many of us. We pick up a book, and we think we have to start at the beginning, and we have to go in sequence to the end, even if it's the encyclopedia. Well, not usually that. But, but if it's an article in the encyclopedia, we think we have to go from the beginning to the end. Well, that depends entirely on why you're reading it. I'm looking at chapter five in this book. The book is Culture Counts by Roger Scruton. Okay, the previous chapter is The Uses of Criticism. Well, I don't want to read about that right now. It doesn't fit my purpose. I'm, I want to read about teaching culture. So I'm going to write to chapter five and leave me alone. I have the right to do that because I'm a free person. I am a free reader. You can't tell me how I have to read this book. Okay, so, so in other words, why? Now, next question. In other words, why am I reading this? But why am I reading this chapter? Am I reading it to get a brief introduction to, to what he's saying about te- how we teach culture? So that, you know, I'm going to have a discussion with somebody else in a little bit. Or am I reading it to get a close look at it? I think, I want to to parse that out a little bit. Because I think most people would say, I do ask that question. Or or the question's question's already been answered by the time I've picked up the book. And looked at how long it's going to take me, right? I know okay. because my teacher assigned it. My mom's making me. Um, I have to read it for my book club. Uh, you know, my best friend told me about it and said it was great. So I want to read it because he said so. Whatever, you know. Those, some, do you notice, though, though, every single one of those is an external cause? Off, Yeah, of my examples, sure. Um, so, so I already know why I've. I've already answered that question when I picked it up, but I think, I think what you're expressing is a reason to ask it again and articulate it because in that moment, once I've decided, okay, I have the time to commit to this, I know how long it's going to take me. I've counted the cost. Now, why am I reading it? And, and, and now when I, when I, when I ask that question again and I articulate the answers, I might find that I don't need to read it from beginning to end. Right. In order, or I don't need to read every single chapter or every single essay, uh, or I need to read the ending before I read the beginning because I can't stand mysteries. Right. You know, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, yeah. All that. Now, of course, what some people are doing right now is cringing. Yeah, of course. Especially your nemesis, Angelina. Because because Angelina, (laughs) I'm sure, I'm assuming here, but I'm assuming that Angelina very sensibly treats a book as a work of art. Mm-hmm. And how dare you pick up Anna Karenina and, you know, dr- jump in three quarters of the way through. Right. Well, it depends why I'm reading it, right? Absolutely. If I'm coming to it because my teacher told me to, then frankly, I'm a practical person. I want to succeed. I want to succeed for the reason I'm reading the book. But if, on the other hand, I'm reading Anna Karenina, which is a massive book, or War and Peace, or Warren Beatty... It's biography or whatever. If I'm if I'm reading whatever I'm reading as an artistic experience, well, yeah, then then I've decided that, yeah, and I'm going to read it beginning to end because that's how the artist presented it. Yeah, okay, I get that, but but I still am a finite being with limited time who can't read very many books in the course of my entire life. So I'm par- I'm I'm pretty particular about what books I actually give myself to, and and then I read it. I read it, okay, so this will really offend some people. I read it as a free person who is the master, okay? I'm the one reading this book. Now, as the master who has determined the purpose, I'm perfectly happy to submit to the artist as he guides me where he's taking me. But it's still, 
it's still my task and my responsibility. Now, I understand that also could make people cringe, but but there is a sense in which you surrender yourself to a book, mm-hmm. right? But you should surrender yourself to a book as a free person, mm-hmm. and you should not enslave yourself to the book. If you find that the book isn't what it advertised itself to be, if it isn't fulfilling a purpose, right? You can have multiple levels of purpose, but if it's not, if it's not fulfilling the purpose of reading, I have no problem putting a book down. I just, Tim McIntosh and I were trying to read Jude the Obscure together and both of us gave up because it's just such a dismal, dark book. Sorry, Tim. But frankly, I regard Jude the Obscure, this is the second time I've read it, I regard it as fundamentally a book that should never have been written and that isn't worth my time to read. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. I, there's, but, uh, Jennifer Dow has, has helped me think about this a little bit better with an analogy that she brings uh, to reading where it's like entering into a, a friendship or a relationship. Yeah, like so the first time you're reading it, it's like it's like going on your first play date with the, mm-hmm. you know the kid next door or something. And then eventually there's you know a friendship blossoms um and i and i I think that it's that i think that analogy even even helps me to understand what you're saying because there is a sense in which even in a friendship i am submitting myself to my friend Mm -hmm. and yet as a free person Mm -hmm. so i i'm not a slave to that person and yet they're not a slave to me either right so there's this kind of mutual act of submission and yet this mutual freedom that exists. And that, I think that's what you're saying. If I understand correctly, that's what you're saying about how we enter into a relationship with a book. I am the, I am, I'm, and yes, I'm submitting myself to the book, but I'm submitting myself as a free person who, you know, maintains some level of autonomy that I might need to put the book down and walk away from it for a few months, few weeks or forever for the rest of my life. Yeah. Never enslave yourself to a book. In fact, in our reading guide, the first line is the key to reading well is to treat books like people. Huh. So, so, so I think that in that there's a sense in which we need to do something odd and controversial, which is we need to respect ourselves. Sometimes mm-hmm. we, we just don't respect ourselves when we read. Um, we need to respect the fact that there are woven into our souls questions that respond to circumstances in the text. And since we only have about two or three minutes left, I want to propose briefly just listing those questions that are that are perfectly normal and natural that you always ask when you read a book so can you think of any what what sort of question and these of course are very absurd general questions for the most part but what kinds of questions do you think a person always asks when he reads a book um who are these characters who are these people i'm okay okay Uh, do i like it do I like the book? Yeah, yeah. Do I like the book? Yeah. Do I like that character? Um, but <laughs> I, I think there's another place where I think where relevance gets confused. Uh huh. But do I do I identify with this character? Yeah. And then we, I think we we ask that question in a way that can be kind of wonky or yeah can can distract us, and because we think of it means you know makes it relevant. Uh, I mean, yeah, it makes the book relevant or interesting to us. But really what we mean is, is this person in any way analogous to me? Yeah. Right. So, so like, like my daughter, you know, last Sunday was the, um, was the, the Sunday of the the prodigal son at church. And afterward, my daughter asked me which, 
which son I identify with. And I said, both, (laughs) you know, uh, because I, because analogously I can see myself in both characters. And then I said, of course, you know, I hope I also can see myself in the father. Um, but I'm not, I'm not perfectly the one character or perfectly the other character, but I'm a little bit of both. And I think, I think, you know, writers, when, when writers are writing their books, there's a little bit of themselves in every character that's right. on the page. Right. And, and, and often when readers read a book, there's a little bit of us in every character we encounter on, on the, you know, across the pages. Yeah. But yeah. we think yeah. we have to find, somehow we've been convinced that for a book to be relevant, we have to identify with a particular character. And, and often we mean, we mean identify in a way that's relatively complete. You know, there's, I feel like that's me yeah. on the page. Um, another reason I think that we we don't always enjoy the books that we ought because that's good. we're demanding too much of it. Yeah, and that of course applies to narrative. Um, I suppose it also would apply to a good essay. But one of the things, so we have to wrap up now. But what? But one of the driving forces of what we're trying to achieve at Circe when it comes to reading is I'm going to put it this way: we're trying to give people to read like human beings instead of students. <laughs> yeah. Cuz you know, you go you go to school and you learn how to dissect the book. But there's but th- that's why I raised the question, do I like it? Okay. Now, some some of the, our more scholarly listeners perhaps and especially some of our more responsible and mature listeners probably responded to that by saying, that's not important. Well, maybe not, but it's a question we ask. Mm-hmm. That's the point. We ask it. If we if we just blow off the question, then we can't pursue it we can't ask well why do i like it what about should i like it well you can't ask that until you've asked whether you like it well you could i guess but you know we need to we need to develop standards for that so so what we're trying to do is is to give you permission as a reader to read like a human being and yes we want you eventually to become a master reader you know who 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 knows how to use symbolism and follow symbolism pursue tropes and motifs and 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 themes and and dig out the inner essence and core of the book hidden deep within it because because I think nothing is more fun than the games authors play with their readers but you have to understand that if you're a reader in a certain sense you're becoming a mouse and the cat's playing with you so if you're not up for that <laughs> but 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 if you but if you learn how to read well then you can become the cat and the book becomes your mouse. And then it can become a friendship being a, between a cat and a mouse. Yeah. But you have to learn. You have to learn how reading works and how writing works, and that means you have to read like a human, reading a text by a human. And and I think we should we should pick that that up again next time we we talk and maybe get a little more specific about what does it mean to read like a human being. I think so because you th- there's there's there are three questions I think that are kind of still out there for us right. Uh, this this idea, how do we read like a human being? Um, and then you mentioned, of course, the question, what are the questions we ask when we approach a text? And I don't think we've got through all of those. I think we should come back to that. That's the same thing as part one, I would argue. It is, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then the third thing that you mentioned earlier uh, that you, you, you kind of just said in passing, but I think it's worth coming back and revisiting, which is... In, in a world where there are so many good books, mm. how do we choose. choose which ones to read? And I, I think I think all three of those are are um, 
ideas that we should revisit. So okay. we should definitely do another episode. Let's do it. If David will let us. Yeah, if David lets yeah. us. We, we can pin him down and... Wait a minute. Give him a pink belly? <laughs> uh, well, a noogie? We, we, we better go. He's calling us. We have to obey the cat. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for listening. And I hope there's some... some uh, thoughts triggered and i'm sure we've offended everybody in some way about how to read so send us your questions if you like thank you thanks planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.